It's from Ecclesiastes 3.11 and Psalm 27.4. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is God's word. Morning, church. Happy Mother's Day to um, all you moms. Uh, my daughter, Juniper, got um, picked out Ashley's card this year, and it said, um, Moms run the world on the card, and um, there's nothing truer at all than, than that. Um, we've been in a series uh, called uh, The Good, Beautiful, and True, or The True, Good, and Beautiful, or The Beautiful, Good, and True. Like, I think it's beautiful, good, and true, but we'll get into that later. Um, on what is classically called the transcendentals, that is, those things that are innate in, innate in the human soul, the, the, our desire that we can never get enough of, um, we can never get enough goodness. We don't want just a little bit of goodness and some badness. We want all good. We don't want some truth and a little bit of lies sprinkled in there. We want all truth. And we don't want some beauty and some ugliness. We want all beauty all the time. And these things point beyond themselves to the divine, to Yahweh God. Um, that's what we've been talking about. So we've been getting into philosophy to do this. We've been getting into church history to do this. Like we've been kind of weaving around kind of everywhere. This morning, we're going to end this, um, in the series and I would like to give you a, a, a plea for beauty. I'm going to talk about beauty. I'm not going to get too much into it. I'll just do like a plea. Um, I hope to do a, a full-on beauty series a little bit later on. Um, and then Pastor Jess is going to come up and follow up with a plea for creativity. So it's a team teaching uh, this morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day. So there you go. Um, my part is a plea for um, beauty and our need for beauty. So humans, um, we need beauty. Now, not just we need beauty, but we need beauty as an apologetic. I think beauty is like the missing apologetic of our time. So that's where we'll start. Um, anyone familiar with the writer, author, psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson? Um, he's written a bunch on, uh, he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. He does a lot of things in and around shame. Um, he's a psychiatrist who does the work like intersection between neuroscience and spiritual formation. Well, his latest book is called The Soul of Desire, and it's basically a book on beauty. And it says, his, the subtitle is, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And if you, if you read this book, the first two chapters, he talks about desire, and then he goes into beauty, and does this really, really remarkable job, like kind of explaining what beauty is. And then at the end of chapter two, he has this really great quote. It says this, if you're finding it challenging, he says, if you're finding it challenging to connect the dots or apprehend the significance of what I am saying, you're in good company. Our society is hell-bent on paying attention to the world primarily through the functional mode of the left hemisphere of the brain on, quote, understanding. Understanding the world in order to manipulate it. This means we end up not attuning to beauty, actively disregarding it, in fact, albeit often unconsciously, and consumed with engaging our world as a problem to be solved or a pathology to be diagnosed. Shame and fear truncate our awareness of beauty, not least as it pertains to our own lives. I share that quote 
Because I know some in here have had a hard time following in this series. And some of like, well, I don't, I don't really get this series. I don't, I don't really, whatever. I can't wait to get to the book of Mark. And that's okay. There's no judgment at all. Actually, in fact, what Dr. Thompson says is that we, this is exactly how we are taught in the West to use our brains. We, are, we, have, we have left the transcendental um, reality of beauty, and we have left that in, in order to embrace truth, facts, data, information. And why do we do that? Why do we do that in the West? Why does our brains do that? Why are we trained to do this? Because, he says, we can use facts. We can use data and we can use information to our own advantage. We can manipulate our world with this data to, I don't know, make money, um, get well, uh, diagnose problems, problem solve. This is kind of how we're wired as, as kind of Western people. However, it's harder to manipulate beauty. It's harder to take beauty and go, I'm going to use this to my advantage. It's really hard to do that. Actually, the philosopher David Bentley Hart, who I've quoted and said, I know, I, re, I probably understand maybe 10% of what he, he writes. I'd probably say 5% of what he writes now. Um, but I'll share with you what I think I understand. He says this. He says that we modern people have disenchanted beauty. And he says, quote, the modern disenchantment with the beautiful as a concept reflects in part a sense that while beauty is something whose event can be remarked upon, we can talk about beauty, oh, that thing was beautiful, and in a way that seems to convey a meaning, oh, the thing, I think this is what that means. The word beauty indicates nothing, neither exactly a quality, nor a property, nor a function, not even really a subjective reaction to an object or occurrence. It offers no phenomenological purchase upon aesthetic experience. So in actuality, we can comment on it, but it really means nothing. And yet, he says, nothing else impresses itself upon our attention with at once so wonderful a power and so evocative an immediacy. Beauty is there, abroad in the order of things, given again and again in a way that defies description and denial with equal impertinence. Like, it's, it's, there's, there's something about beauty that's almost rude in the, fact, in, 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 the, in the sense that it shows up and you, you can't really describe it. Just, it defies description. Like, describe that beauty. Like, it's like, it was beautiful. I don't have any other word for that. And it's also, you can't deny it. You were struck by the beautiful and you can't deny it. The modern disenchantment of beauty um, is for the, re the reason why we do that is we can't really gain anything from beauty. It doesn't gain us anything. But, and nothing really real comes out of beauty, we think. And yet, nothing else really works on the soul like beauty does. Like, we can't deny that. See, thanks to Descartes, we live with the assumption that we humans are thinking creatures. I think, therefore, I am. By thinking, we can accurately and rationally perceive what is good. We can, like, I can think about what's good, and we, we can do that in our heads, and once we know what is good, we can rationally decide what is beautiful. But that is not how the brain works. Dr. Kurt Thompson says that this is literally opposite of what the brain, how the brain works. And he quotes who we've been talking about uh, previously, um, the theologian Han Urs von Baltischer. Um, von Urs, uh, Han Urs von Baltischer, I always call him Baltischer. Really long name. He, he writes like the seven 
giant seven-volume work on beauty. It's called The Glory of the Lord. I have not read it. I'll just be honest, because I, I might read it one day and like, spend the rest of my life reading it. But um, I've read books about that book, because that's, that's a long, those are long, long seven volumes. Anyway, um, he writes this. Basically, and, and Kurt Thompson also reads a book about the book. But anyway, um, he, he says that, Baltasar says, we know beauty first. This is why he argues the transcendental should go beauty, goodness, and then truth. And the reason why is that we know beauty first, and then we know goodness, and then we know truth. Because we first encounter the world through our senses. We know, if, we, if we're born into the loving arms of a mother, we learn everything we know from the beauty of our mothers. They're all of our senses we learn we learn knowledge through our senses. This is how the brain works. We know beauty first through our senses. Tom, Dr. Thompson agrees. This is literally how the brain works. He says, first we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Baltasar says that beauty is what attracts us to goodness. Being immersed in the beautiful and the good necessarily enables us to comprehend what is true. He says that of all the transcendentals, the beautiful is the closest to our senses. Again, one, um, one writer who, who studies Baltasar and, and writes a really good primer on it says, quote, the significance of the beautiful is that it indicates how an object might be outside us, facing us, and yet at the same time draw us into itself. I share these quotes because I think every, every sentence is pregnant and they say it way better than me. Listen to this first sentence. What's so significant about something that's beautiful is that the thing that's beautiful is outside of us, it faces us, and it draws us into itself. Of all the other transcendentals, the beautiful is the closest to our senses. It is therefore more directly present than all the other transcendental properties of being. The beautiful is a fully objective property of being, but it is the nature of this property to be communicative to communicate itself to observers. So the essence of beauty is that it draws you in, it communicates something to you, it awakens you to something. He says the beautiful is reality under the aspect of form, known as such by imaginative intuition, just as truth is reality best known through propositions, by intelligence, and goodness is reality best known through values, by moral sense. Now why does this matter? Why are we arguing about beauty? Why am I making a plea for beauty? Why does this matter at all? We're in a church. Why does this matter for the Christian life, for the way of Jesus? Why does this matter? And here it is. This matters because God himself chose to use beauty as the way of making himself known to the world. God chose beauty as the way he would make himself known to the world. Think of Jesus. Jesus, the incarnation of God, so that we can see and touch and hear and smell and now through communion taste, that we can, with our senses, the incarnation, so we can, we can behold the beauty of God in Christ. See, many of us think that we Christians, we believe because the Bible is true. We're like, why do you believe? Because it's true. And we just want to get all the facts right. But before the Bible was written, it was beheld. Before anything in the Bible was written, it was beheld. 
This is what John writes in 1 John. This is what he writes to people who, who, like, who want to, to know about this Jesus, beautiful Jesus, who through his cross, his redemptive purposes in the cross, and his resurrection and his ascension, who he is, and John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard. What, what John is saying is we beheld Jesus and what we tell to you is the thing that we've seen in beauty. Actually, the whole Bible is something that was beheld. They saw the beauty of Jesus and then learned its goodness and then learned it was true. See, um, the ethicist Timothy uh, Patesis writes in his book, The Ethics of Beauty, and if you ever get this book, it's like ginormous, it's like hugely thick. And in this book, he says that the New Testament began, our New Testament began as a response to a theophany, a response to God revealing himself, from God showing himself, revealing himself to us. He says, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, shone out to the world and all but compelled a response and action of thought and, and beauty. Like, we beheld the crucified Christ and the re resurrected Christ, and it exploded. This beauty of God exploded and, and, and ignited what we have written in the Bible, what we have portrayed in art, all of this stuff because beauty awakens. He actually says this, since those first witnesses of God's appearing were found to be faithful and true by still other faithful and true witnesses, in a succession lasting from apostolic times until today, the theology of the Christian community has ever remained a reflection upon beauty. What you have in the church, what you have when you're reading the scriptures, what you have when you worship, you are we, are, we continue to reflect on the beauty that is Christ, the revelation of God. Now, why does this matter? Again, let's click in. Why does this even matter? Because beauty awakens us. It awakens us to a greater reality, which brings me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which we read at the very beginning. In Ecclesiastes 3, here's a quick overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, some say that Ecclesiastes should be the very first book of the Bible you read because it frames up the human problem. Ecclesiastes was written by someone called the teacher. Okay, the teacher basically has um, the, 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 entire, the, the entirety of the book except for like the first verse and the last verse. But the whole rest of it is the teacher. He's telling you about wisdom. He's giving you wisdom. This is what wisdom is. It's like learned wisdom. He's like embodied it. And the teacher says this about wisdom. He says, verse 2, you want to the, 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 know the world? You want to know about the world? He says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word here is hevel, 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 hevel. Everything, hevel. Mean, this is used 38 times in the book. Meaninglessness. The teacher says that everything, every pursuit, every pleasure, every accomplishment, every season, everything you work for and everything that happens to you in this life is utterly meaningless. Obviously, he's a nihilist. He's a nihilist that has, like, he's a deist. He's a deist nihilist. He's like, God is there, but he's like, you know, it's like um, not personal. He just kind of started the world. And now we live, his perspective is under the sun. 
the perspective of life under the sun or what we would call like the universe, like the fixed perspective of life under the sun. And why does a teacher think that life is meaningless? Some translations say the word vanity. I don't think vanity and meaningless is the, is a, the, the best interpretation of Hevel. Hevel, the word is, is um, literally smoke, vapor, a mirage, a hologram. It means to go for something that you thought was there, that you thought had weight, that you thought had meaning, only to find out that it had no real substance at all. It wasn't solid or it wasn't real. Like pleasure, like money, like knowledge, like sex, like traveling. You think subconsciously, if I get this thing, then I will have a life. This will give my life meaning if I get this thing. And then you get it, and it doesn't. When I move to San Francisco and then I get that job, then my life will have meaning. You might write that in your journal, but most of the time we don't write that in our journals, but we subconsciously believe that. And then we get the thing, and then it doesn't. It was like something that was real, and we knew we were going for it, and then we get there, it was just a mirage. So we keep going, well, if I get that partner, then my life will have meaning. We get that partner, and it's a mirage. And it goes over and over and over again, and the and eventually it turns to things like drugs, and it turns to things like complete checking out and absolute nihilism. Like, like I've said before, this is literally every single biography of someone famous. This is how it goes. I thought that this would, this would change my life, and it didn't. I thought that this would give me meaning, and it didn't. Hevel. This is what he says. He proves this argument by living through it, not just by like, studying it. He goes through it. Verse uh, chapter two, he says, so I said to myself, come on, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people and do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. What was good? He does it all. He tries to fill his mind with knowledge. He tries to fill his body with hedonism. He tries to fill his pockets with materialism. He tries to fill his conscience with ethics. He tries to fill his spirit with spirituality, and they all break down. He goes after knowledge, and he says, to know is better than to be ignorant, true, but there are some times when, when you know so much that you realize how much of a bummer life is. It's way better to be ignorant, because if you know, you realize, oh my gosh, this is kind of meaningless. And he says, Really smart people can do really stupid stuff. Have you ever met anyone like that? They're really smart, and they do the stupidest things. He's like, yeah, and it's folly, and it's hevel. You could be really smart and still do dumb things. Hevel, he says. Okay, well, I'll try hedonism and pleasure. He says, That's, numbing is fun. Numbing out is fun, it's pleasurable, but if you're looking for meaning, you will not find it here. You will find distraction. You will find endorphins. You will not find meaning. Hevel. And then he says, well, what about work, wealth, and power? Well, he finds that this is one of the worst things of all because you can build a wealth and build a fortune and you will die and leave all of that to your stupid kids. <laughs> this is what he says. He's, he must have watched Succession. This is like literally <laughs> that. But that's actually the history of the world. He says, that's the dumbest thing of all. You give it to your children who will probably waste it. Hevel Hevel, hevel. So he says in conclusion, after all these attempts for wisdom, pleasure, and wealth, I hated life. I hated life. 
What do people get from all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds have no rest. This too is meaningless. This is all meaningless. After all of this, you get to chapter three, and then you get this like little like crack of light, this little break in his thinking where light actually gets to come in. And it's just brief. And if you just read it, you might miss it. It's chapter three, verse 11. And he says, he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God does from beginning to end. Now we might be tempted to think, well, this was just a, a cute verse tucked in the middle of this really strange book. But this is the, this is the part where the light comes in. Because what this, this philosopher is talking about is time, beauty, and eternity. Time, beauty, and eternity. Remember, beauty is that which awakens. And beauty is always set in time. Because beauty never lingers, it only visits. And that in time, and then it passes. This is why sometimes you'll hear a song and it moves you to tears and you're like, I'll just listen to that on repeat. And you listen on repeat and it doesn't do the same thing. Why? Because that beauty was a moment and it was gone. There's a moment of like a sunset and you see it and you're like, oh, and you keep looking at it. And if it lasted for 50 minutes, it would be gone. You go the next night, you're like, oh, it doesn't do the same thing as it did. Why? Because beauty comes and it goes. It never sticks around. It's always this like thing that visits in time and then moves through time. But what it does, it awakens us like smelling salts to the reality that these moments won't last forever and therefore it awakens eternity. Eternity is set in the human heart. Beauty hits us and it awakens us to something. It awakens us to time and what God does with time, and not just what God does with time, but that eternity and how we're built for eternity, but this life is fleeting and then we will all die, but why, would, why in the world would we die when we were created for eternity and beauty awakens us to this reality and the, the whole hope is to follow that, to follow that transcendental to the transcendent one. That's the idea, that's the hope. And so C.S. Lewis said this, he said, we don't want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that bounty's enough, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with beauty we see. We want to pass into it, receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is what beauty does. It awakens us to something that we want to have union with. The bell should be going off. Union with what? With whom? With God. God shows up, he shows himself to be beautiful in Jesus. He awakens us to this beauty. We want nothing more than just to be united with beauty, just like we wanna be united with truth, just like we wanna be united with goodness. And so my plea, my time is up, my plea is let's awaken beauty, transcendent beauty that awakens the beauty of Christ to people. One last thing, sorry, my time is up, but one last thing. You might say, to what end? Why are we doing this? To what end? Here's just a little, like, just a little snippet. There's a, a comedian, and a, a friend of mine told me about this comedian, and then I, I saw, saw the clip for myself. This comedian who didn't, very crass comedian, very, very crass comedian, has a podcast where he's on this podcast with other comedians, and then randomly says on one of his shows that I just went to church this last Sunday. 
And everyone's giving him a hard time. I'm like, oh my gosh, why are you going to church? What are you doing? He's like, I don't know, I'm just going to church. And I walked in, and the music was playing, and I couldn't stop crying. He goes, if you put on, you put on a worship song right now, I will cry. And then someone's making fun of like, like Oceans. He's like, oh my gosh, Oceans is a flamethrower. He's just freaking out about how good, how good Christian, like worship music is. And they were kind of laughing at him, and like he's dead on serious. He's like, I, and I, could, I, don't, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. And my friend just told me recently, it was like, oh yeah, and he just showed up recently on another podcast just saying, hey, I just read this book, this thing in Isaiah. Like, this is crazy. Some, something's like awakening. Now, the Christian church, not joking, we're really good at music. Really good. And it's beautiful. And we need to be even, we continue to be good at music. But I want what, that, that thing that happens when people walk into a church and the music is playing and something transcendent happens and something beauty hits them outside of their like, their like you know, pre-rational thing happens and they're hit right in the heart. I want that everywhere in the church. Everywhere in the church and for, and for the church. Not just music, everywhere. That's, what, that's my hope. Like a full assault of the beauty of God. And I use the word assault because this is the word that David Hart uses. Beauty comes at you and it's just like, it's irritating. It gets under you. You're like, oh my gosh, now I have to talk about this. I can't, I'm, I've left differently. Like, I, what is this thing? This is what beauty does. And we've just said, oh, that's just for music in the church. It's for everything in the church. And this is what we have to recover. So this, is, this is my plea for beauty. Okay, now segue quote. Jess, I'm so sorry. You still have time. A lot of time, actually. Oh, here you go. <laughs> segue quote. So speaking of, of beauty and music and create, creativity, Tyler Madsen, our, our worship pastor, just went on sabbatical. And um, in December, I bought him a book by uh, Makoto Fujimura um, on um, the art of making. And I bought him this book, The Art of Making, and you know, I bought him one and I bought myself one because you know, I thought, if he gets one, I should get one. So I got myself one, <laughs> and I gave it to him to read during the sabbatical. And I read it and read uh, the foreword is by N.T. Wright. And I read this in December, which is like why we're doing this series. This, this quote right here is like, oh, now that's where I want to talk about the Transcendentals after Easter in a vocation series because of this quote. Here it is. N.T. Wright, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that, as the New Testament insists, this has brought about the expected launch of new creation of the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, then our present vocations really do partake of that new creation, bringing fragments and flashes of new creation to birth in the midst of the still darkened and sorrowing world. We are, to that extent, like spies whom Moses sent into the land of Canaan, who brought back fresh fruit from the promised land to a people still in the desert. Great. <laughs> um, I'm not rushed, so I'm just going to go until we end. <laughs> Um, yes, Dave had a beautiful picture of what we are to do with beauty, and I'm going to talk about what I think is the key, which is the creative imagination with God. And so before I start, I just want you to imagine with me really quickly, with your, you might be asking, like, what is imagination? So I'm going to have us play a little game. Let's pretend that we're kids or even adults. You might see me around town staring off at the sky or watching Carl the Fog. Um, but we're going to do something called cloud watching. I'm going to show you an image, and I actually want us to play a fun little game. And we're going to answer, what is the cloud? Is it a dinosaur? Is it a dog? Or is it a dragon? 
All right, so let's look at our first image. This can be interactive. What do you guys see? Dog, great. First of all, there's no wrong answers, okay? Like, <laughs> imagination, right? All right, the second one. Dinosaur. <laughs> I've heard a lot of mixed reviews, I guess. And the third one. <laughs> what do we think it is? Dragon, okay, well great, it sparked a lot of imagination, curiosity, that's exactly what we're going for. <laughs> so, I always want to say that this may not be literal dragons or dogs or dinosaurs in the sky, and maybe you saw something very different, but that's okay, that is us being creative and imaginative, right? The point is that we collectively experience something imaginative, right? Imagination is defined as the faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. Imagination is the ability of the mind to be creative and resourceful. See, imagination is not just thinking, right? Imagination is not just goal setting and then making plans. And it's not just a thought or an illusion. See, imagination is creative in nature. It is creating something. It is responding. It involves all of our senses, just like to beauty, goodness, and truth. It requires our mind and our body and our soul. It is what is often evoked as beauty calls to us in the world. So in light of beauty and goodness and truth, imagination is the thing that we use to join in the creation of new creation with Jesus. It is the ability to respond and create future realities with God. That beautiful NT quote gave us a perfect imagination of what that looks like. It's the thing, imagination is the thing that points us toward God. It awakens, it calls us like our vocation towards God. The invitation for us is to use our imagination to be creative. It's all around us. And the question that we're posed with is, how are we to live in light of God's beauty and goodness and truth and all that's involved when it calls to us all the time? See, it's not just about watching clouds, which I would say is still a great practice because it's a great start, but it's letting the ideas and pictures and our imagination run wild with creativity. It's how we respond with all of our senses to actually what we see in our minds to a future reality, what we can create together with God. It's here that we are to be awakened to the gift of our imagination. Stephen Turley, in his book Awakening Wonder, quotes, the imagination has been given to humans by God to perceive the divinely infused meaning of the cosmos, which provides a moral map of the world by which we might live. See, our imagination is given so that we can actually take all the raw materials of God's world and rearrange it to make something new or renew it. In this way, we are invited to co-create and co-author with God because he created us in his image and his likeness. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, it says, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field and God's building. We are also co-heirs in Romans 8, 17 says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 
if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See, as co-workers and co-heirs, we are created to create. We are to call forth things like God does. We are to align ourselves and our lives and with others to create and make things with God. There's this bridge of imagination and creativity that's intertwined and works together to create. So remember, our response actually, responding is not passive. We don't just wait for God, right? We get to actually work with God. It's active, it's alive, and we respond to it. Artist and author Makoto Fujimura quotes, God did not build us as a survival machines that would function like clockwork. We are creatures of magnificence and imagination made in the image of God. I love the word magnificence. I feel like we need to use that more and let our imagination create with God. So we co-labor with Christ to bring new creation with him. This means we get to bring all these new elements of beauty, goodness, and truth. We talked about taking all the raw materials with God and creating something with him, right? This also requires an expansion of our current imagination. And it requires sometimes great effort. Remember, it's not passive. See, in this response to the call of goodness, beauty, and truth, we get to live into a different kind of future, and we actually get to imagine it with God. Before we actually see renewal or experience renewal on this earth or see the kingdom of heaven here on earth, we actually need to have our imaginations awakened to the possibilities of what God and you and I and others can create together. We awaken our imagination to picture humans flourishing with God's help. So, we might be pondering some questions around imagination. We might find ourselves thinking, where is my imagination? Like, have I lost it somehow? Have I lost my sense of awe or wonder? And perhaps we actually are grieving that maybe we've lost our imagination somehow along the way, and we actually need to rekindle that and create it. And maybe we need a little reminder, actually, again, of what the transcendentals, beauty, goodness, and truth, they're here to remind us. They aim towards God. That this is a gift from God, and if we are to experience and embody goodness and truth, we actually need to be reminded of how to imagine, like how to use our imagination and create with God. And here's the thing, it doesn't expire. The invitation is there. So maybe if we're grieving a little bit that we've lost our imagination, the invitation is there to create. It's through imagination that I think is the key. We remember, like we said, we're created to create. We are co-authors with God. That's a gift. We use our imagination of the kingdom on earth and what our imagination can awaken with God. Most importantly, beauty goodness and truth calls to us and our aim is actually what I think Psalm 27 4 exhibits beautifully for our scripture today it states one thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple this I think points us and aims us towards being with God creating something with God. I want to talk about how to help infuse our imaginations, perhaps cultivate that, or maybe even bring our imaginations back to life. It's from this psalm that I get a couple points that I want to share about how I think we can do that. 
The first one is to be joyfully known. The second is to inquire. The third is to dwell. And the fourth is to gaze. And the first one, be joyfully known. We need to reinvigorate our imagination. This means we are to become interpersonally integrated with each other and with God. Meaning we not only get to deeply know others, but we actually get to be deeply known by God and by others. This is the key, right? We remember this is not just about receiving information, but we are received and known into the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? We get to be this kind of community that calls other forward to goodness and truth and beauty. And this is everywhere we go. It's all around us. The, the invitations never stop coming. We get to be this kind of cloud of witnesses to imagine different kinds of futures, maybe different aspects of our vocation and our lives. And we actually create something new with God and one another. I often think about this when I feel stuck in life, whether it's a decision or maybe movement or choice in life. I need others to help me imagine future with God. I think of this in a really personal example. It's Mother's Day today, right? For me, motherhood's always been a very complex thing. Currently, I'm not married. I don't have any biological children, but I feel like my vocation has been awakened to spiritual motherhood. That is not an easy task, but also one that I think, gosh, being joyfully known unlocked that vocation for me, unlocked and helps me dream of futures that I actually could never imagine for myself. And it's continual. It doesn't end. It's going to keep creating. I'm going to keep creating things with God, and I'm going to keep imagining things with God. The second thing is inquire. Jesus asks questions because we are in a relationship with a curious God. God does not use questions merely to educate us or, and he's not actually inquiring to prove something wrong or to teach us. He actually inquires because it means relationship. And it means also we experience God that it's like someone this beautiful and this good and this true, the author of all of these things are curious about getting to know us. Inquire is actually how we begin to create and curate beauty. And inquire isn't just about questions. The purpose is not to attain information, remember? It's about our senses, all of our senses. It's about being safe and soothed and secure. And God is an inquiring God. He inquires after us. And sometimes he asks us questions and is curious, not to pour out or poke fun at our wounds, but to actually know us, know what aches us, what hurts us, what is painful, what is happy, what is exciting. He wants to engage us because he actually wants to know us deeper. I think of the example, too, in the spiritual motherhood story. Like, inquiring with God is the way that I work that out with God. I'm in relationship with God. I'm in relationship with others. I also think of examples in scriptures that God actually begins with questions. I think of um, God and with... Uh, Adam and Eve and Job and Moses, in the story of God, you see him begin with questions. It's inquiries. They want to know what's happening. The third one is gaze. In this aspect of gaze, it's all about perseverance. Kurt Thompson says, the formation and recognition of beauty then requires perseverance and is a process that cannot be rushed, whether in a community or in the material world. 
This requires our willingness to patiently allow it to reveal itself, even when we might not initially grasp that we are in its presence. See, gaze does not mean to work harder. Gaze is actually a lot more paused. It actually doesn't require work. It requires us to turn our attention to the thing that is the author of beauty. It's to be present and to look upon it in terms not of our own terms, but for what it is. We allow beauty to enrapture us and to carry us to the peaks and valleys of what it means for us to be human. We get to linger, right? I think of this in community when I get to uh, inquire and to also gaze on God about what he is doing around and in my life and in my vocation. And the fourth one is dwell. Kurt Thompson also says, we must put ourselves in the pathway of oncoming beauty. The art, the natural wonder, this requires our willingness to remain long enough for our sensing brain to adjust and receive, long enough for us to be fond by what we are encountering as much as we find it. I love that he talks about finding beauty is actually when we dwell, when we put ourselves in the pathway of oncoming beauty. Dave had so eloquently described that it is all around us, in front of us, behind us, everywhere. And we get to dwell in what God is doing. That is such a gift that we get to soak that in. We get to create with God. We get to see that on behalf of other people. See, dwelling requires tending. That means cultivating and tending, maybe relationships, things or dreams or things and ideas that we have that over time, they actually can take root and bear fruit. We answer questions in our dwelling. Some of the most pivotal questions God asks is, where are you and what do you want? This is desire. This leads us to even deeper relationship with God. To dwell, we take time with others and to take time to let beauty soak in. Soaking or putting ourselves in the pathway of oncoming beauty is where we can use our imagination. It's where it's stoked and cultivated. Right In Ephesians 2, it says, And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So it's not just for us to know God and to be known, but we make him known by dwelling and imagining with God. Right In my personal uh, example of spiritual motherhood, dwelling is one of the ones that's the hardest because I always want to move and do something about it. <laughs> but there's a lot I can't control about that, Right? But when I dwell with God and with others, I actually experience beauty and an awakening that is really different than I would experience if I tried to task my way into achieving a goal of some sort, right? Dwelling um, reveals the wow, meaning I realize when I dwell and let things soak in of God's beauty and goodness and truth, I actually realize that I'm parenting a lot more people than I think <laughs> I'm parenting. And that to me awakens an imagination to creativity of like, God, you knew way better than I did about motherhood. You knew way better than I knew about spiritual motherhood and what that looks like. Just because I was willing and open with others to put myself in the pathway of beauty. Before we close, um, I want to leave us with a thought, and then Dave is going to come up and actually commission us into living our life in this way. But I want us to remember and to focus on something happens, actually, when we begin to imagine with God. 
We get to expand our dreams and emotions, and it helps make some room for envisioning what God is doing. He is always working. We just want to be tuned in to what he's doing and how he's doing it. It helps us see beauty, truth, and goodness in all of creation. And then our vocations actually get to respond with God to create and use our imaginations to respond to what he's calling us to, right? Beauty and goodness and truth emerge only in the presence of God, regardless if we're aware of it. And no beauty or goodness or truth ever materialized apart from a vitalizing work of the Spirit. So I'm going to invite Dave up to commission us. I think that um, what Jess was saying, especially in and around uh, the stuff of spiritual motherhood, so creatively uh, unique and beautiful in that you have to have an imagination for something like that. And the redeemed, sanctified imagination is something that I'm going to pray that just gets unlocked in our church um, for not just problem solving, um, but imaginative ways that we can show the beauty of Christ in, in our city. So would you hold your hands out? And I just want to pray uh, like, a, like a, a commissioning. Lord, I, I pray a, um, a power your, by the power of your spirit, I pray just a, a commissioning over this congregation of beauty and creativity. Like things would be unlocked creatively in people that go way beyond um, problem solving, though we need that too. There's, there are things going on in this city that we do not have any imagination on how to solve, and we need redeemed imagination. But beyond that, Lord, help us to create. Help us to, uh, in, our, in our startups, if we're in finance, if we're in healthcare, working with children, Lord, just would you unlock the kind of like imagination that's needed that we could be like the spies that that go into the future and bring the future back into the present and say look at how good it is look at how good god is look at how good um, it is um, in god's coming kingdom and that we would do that in a sense we would we would be be people who know how to live into the future what you're doing christ and then bring it into the present and so i pray that uh for those that are our artists that you would um by your spirit, inspire them to new heights.